Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality, and I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Today on the podcast are my co-executive producers of The Case of John Bonet Ramsey, which recently aired on CBS and is still available online if you missed it. Jim Clemente and Laura Richards are also the lead investigators on the show. We all sort of created it together and sold the show together. And while there's a lot of information about the case out there, what we wanted to do is give more of a sneak peek behind the scenes to tell you kind of how it all came to came to be and how the hell we did this real investigation on an insane production timetable. And the answer is I still don't know. We'll also talk about some of the footage that didn't make it to air in the six-hour version, which you hopefully will find interesting, and give you some tidbits, revealing tidbits of how we made the case of John Bonet Ramsey. All right, just give me a thumbs up when you're ready. Okay, great. All right, Jim Clemente and Laura Richards are here. How you doing, Alisa? Hi, Alisa. So glad you guys are here because I've barely seen you. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are here to talk about the case of John Bonet Ramsey, which just finished airing uh, this past week on CBS, and uh, luckily to strong ratings, which we're all very pleased with. Um, congratulations. Thank, Thank you. you. Congratulations, and to you too. too. Thank you. It's Thanks. been a team effort with yeah. uh, you very much behind the scenes, but a key part in the show. Thank you. Well, it was my honor. It was. And we'll talk about that because I think people, you know, there's been a lot out there and you guys have done a lot of press and, and you have a fantastic podcast called Real Crime Profile where you're going to talk about, um, you know, the case in depth. And obviously this podcast has a little bit of a different bent and we talk more to producers and people who are kind of making the content. And since you guys were executive producers on the show um, with me as well, we are going to sort of talk a little bit about the behind the scenes that I think people will be interested Great. in. And uh, first, I guess I always start by saying how we met. So Jim, how did we meet? Uh, actually, we met on the phone first. You told me that you had heard about my name and you wanted to know whether we could come up with some ideas to make a show. And uh, it was about five years ago. Yeah, about five years ago, I was driving on the 405, and I said, "Well, I'm driving right now, but I do have an idea. But wait till can I wait till I get home?" And I called you about an hour later, and I told you about a show um, where we kind of go into depth about serial killers, and I, we focus on cases where these are very bad people, but not very newsworthy. In other words, they weren't covered in the news a lot, but in each case, somebody actually escaped from the serial killer. And so we could focus on the victim and survival and and how the survival instinct kicks in. And so it'll actually have a positive effect. Yeah, it's funny. I actually, we got connected because uh, a network had come to me saying we'd like to do sort of what is the what is our version of the real life criminal minds. So I naturally went into Google and wrote, Real life criminal minds. <laughs> and Jim's name popped up. Turns out we had the same agent in ICM. Jim and Laura have met several years before. Laura is a... New Scotland Yard, yes, criminal behavioral analyst. Thank and you. <laughs> I well, should Jim, know that by now. <laughs> you should know that by now. It's been said a couple of times, although it's a bit of a mouthful. Um, and we met, Jim introduced us because of the show that was being put together. And the show Killer Profile was born. And that was 2012, I think, the actual show. But of course, we met before the about a year show. before yeah. yeah so it was the two of these guys and Jim Fitzgerald who's also in the case of John Bonet um, he is a forensic linguistic profile 
profiler who uh, broke down the ransom letter on the show. I'm sure you guys will remember because he was an integral part of the team. And and you guys were my three profilers. And we we kept in touch and cut to, uh, I guess, four years later. Back in November, I called Jim when crime was hotter than ever with the jinx and cereal. And I said, what does my crime guy have going on? (laughs) And I do remember you calling. And Laura was there at my house. And we were sitting there. And we sat in the lounge. Yeah, I I put the phone on the corner of the table. And you said, do you have have any ideas for any great new shows? And I said, John Benet Ramsey, and you said, "Well, I don't know, you know, is it, you know." And then we, I, I think we started with you. You were saying, "Is there enough for you know right, one an hour?" Just a rehash. Yeah. Well, we said it was a twenty-year anniversary. That's right. an important point right. because right. it made it newsworthy and you know time-worthy as well. And then we started to talk through the detail. Right. Well, and, in my producer head, it was like, "Okay, well, what's new? How am right. I? How am I going to sell this then, any more than what idea is going to do?" Right. And then I said, "You know, this isn't just." a one-off. This is actually a series and we could do all cases that people think they know what happened, but we can tell them the truth of what happened behind the scenes. And then Laura proceeded to send me a very detailed document um, because with my, you know, skeptical seller hat, I thought, all right, well, what do they really have? And, you you know, she had put together um, using um, James Kohler, who was part of our team, and he was hired by Mary Lacey to investigate the case and wrote a book based on his findings called Foreign Faction and, and Laura and Jim had both read it and it was definitely a starting point for a lot of what we wanted to reinvestigate and so a lot of the evidence that you put into that document really piqued my interest because I thought wow I thought I knew this case and I literally have no idea about any of this. Right. right. I and mean some of it came from Kohler's book, but Jim also had a file yeah. from and his time in the FBI. So he and I talked about it extensively and actually there were lots of sources of material to that went into the document, not yeah. just one. Right. Yeah, and right, Jim absolutely. Fitzgerald also had done the forensic linguistic profile of the letter already. And we of course had done a number of presentations around the country to law enforcement about that case and that letter because it's an anomaly. And you and Fitz had actually offered your services pro bono to BPD. Can you talk about that? Well, when Jim Fitz was retiring, uh, we had a conversation about the case and the fact that it's bothered us that it was still unsolved and it was still open. And yet that we both believed it was solvable. And so we, Jim actually contacted the Boulder Police Department and offered our services pro bono, as well as other linguists and other and uh, statement analysis uh, agents. And so they said, no, they said, we're not interested. Uh, so we had that conversation. Jim and I had that conversation back in 2007 when he retired. And then when I got out of the bureau at the end of 2009, we had the conversation again, but we just didn't know what to do, how we could actually get these people together to do to actually do a reinvestigation and help try to solve this case and close the case. And that is kind of what's cool about this intersection now with real investigations and content, TV, whatever you want to call it, because we need resources, you know? I mean, people need resources to do proper investigations, and, you know, we're cutting, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but being able to rebuild the key rooms in that house. I mean, you need money to do key that. Key floors in the house, not just rooms. I key mean, yes. building the house, right. but also bringing in the team. I mean, it does right. cost a lot of money. And, and just to go back a step, I mean, in 1996, when my career was starting in New Scotland Yard, this case was happening. 
over here and I was very interested to, to watch as it unfolded and knew that lots of things didn't make sense and certainly the crime scene behaviours. But then in 2007 when I was with Fitz at Quantico at the FBI, he and I sat down and reviewed it and we went through, he went through the letter and it was absolutely fascinating what he said and that's really when he started to certainly open my eyes around forensic linguistic profiling and just the value of it, particularly in an investigation like this. So, um, you know, so as we were doing this, I think, you know, you brought up Fitz and I want to talk about the team because I think putting at the time my producer seller hat on, I thought, okay, what's going to make this stand out? What's going to make networks want to buy a show that a lot of people are going to be pitching because it is the 20th anniversary? And I knew the two key things were the active investigation and that no one else could do that because the second part of it was that no one else had the team that we brought together and you guys sought out. And most of those investigators actually were involved in the originally 19, in the original case in 1996, Dr. Henry Lee, Dr. Warner Spitz, Jim Fitzgerald, Jim Clemente. And so... Um, and James Kohler. And course, I'm sorry, and James Kohler. a key part. A key yeah. part. Um, and, yeah. and so that was special. So in order to build this team of investigators, we had to sort of reach back into... The experience that we had. So Jim Fitzgerald and I had worked together our entire FBI career. So it was very clear that he was a very key person because he had already looked at from a forensic linguistic perspective that letter. And, and he's he, the father of forensic linguistics. He actually created the forensic linguistic profiling section of the FBI. So he's very, very instrumental in this team. And he also had a longstanding relationship with James Kohler. So he contacted James Kohler, who agreed to join our investigative team. And then I contacted Dr. Lee and Dr. Warner Spitz, both of whom I'd worked cases over the course of my career with, very high-profile, complex cases. And I knew that both of them had had experience investigating this particular case. So I thought that would be wonderful if they would agree to join. And, and in fact, they did, based on the fact that this was an investigation. This wasn't a TV show. This was an investigation that we hoped to document with a documentary series. And then the, the, the last piece of the puzzle was statement analysis. And I had worked with Stan Burke. He was excellent at what he did at the FBI Academy. He taught statement analysis to new agents and the National Academy. And he taught law enforcement around the country and around the world, actually. Um, and I knew that he had particular experience with written and spoken statements. And he could analyze them in a way that uh, was very deeply insightful. So I reached out to him as well, and he decided to join our investigative team as well. And he was fantastic. Laura, what were some of the other things that sort of a Hollywood budget and production were able to help with us in this investigation? Well, I mean, I think that is the, the key thing, really. What we were trying to do is build the best team that you possibly could. If you were... Um, you know, putting a case together, you want the best experts in the world because this has been a stalled investigation for 20 years. So, I mean, certainly, you know, the money would go to consultants, for example, but also, you know, it's bringing people into the crime scene. And of course, you know, we were originally looking at buying the house, but then when we found out that the actual uh, Ramsey house had been renovated and changed so significantly in the basement area, it really made no sense to do so. 
Um, and of course, when we embarked upon our partnership with Critical Content, I mean, Tom Foreman is the man who's been, you know, building houses and doing them very quickly in various uh, guises of extreme makeover, etc. And he said, well, we'll build the damn house. And, and that kind of made sense, really. And although we mm -hmm. laughed about it at first because it just seemed a crazy idea. <laughs> But, you know, to Jim and I, it made absolute sense because a picture paints a thousand words, but going to the scene it really does paint a million. And, of course, for people like um, Dr. Werner Spitz, who had gone to Boulder but never actually been allowed in the house, um, he told us that was due to the fact, you know, Boulder Police did get him uh, to Boulder, but when it came to actually going into the house itself, that uh, they were refused entry by the Ramses. So he had never actually stepped foot in, in the house where Jim and Dr. Henry Lee had done. Um, and James Kohler too. So it was important to bring our experts to Boulder, Colorado and for, to take them into the house. Yeah, and part of what we did, which Eddie, our incredible showrunner, director, unsung hero, leader of the universe as far mm. as I'm concerned. Absolutely, part of what he seconded. Did, right, part of what he did, which you know I, I thought was great, was he, he really made those reactions happen in real time. He sort of you know, kept them outside of the set so that once we started filming, we could get that reaction from you guys first Absolutely. and from Dr. Werner Spitz, from Ron Walker, people that had been at the crime scene. And you actually saw genuine reactions on camera of yeah. like, whoa, right. this is creepy. Well, yeah, because having seen the crime scene videos and the crime scene photographs, it's, it's a two-dimensional representation of it. But to actually walk through and see the spatial relationships and see the ways that people come in and out and how people could move about in those spaces, all that stuff is incredibly important to crime scene reconstruction. And that is a critical component of doing a criminal investigative analysis or and behavioral analysis. did a great job Incredible. too because they were looking it. at the crime oh scene God. photo, the video, and they matched the two things together. So spatially, as Jim said, but also... Just the intricate details. I know. It was toys and peanut I mean, butter I mean, the bagels on the table and the video camera from 1996. I mean, that blew me away when when we started to compare the the actual crime scene video to the scene yeah. because it was just, ex but exactly. And it's funny, I'm getting a lot of texts from friends who are watching saying, wow, they were really slow. And it actually, Because the right. house was a mess. But it actually did help our analysis because yeah. one, of, one of the critical things that I didn't realize from the actual photograph and video was that the pillow was missing from John Bonet's bed and it was sitting on the counter in the kitchen. And that gives us a path of John Bonet coming downstairs from her bedroom where she was put when she was asleep into the kitchen, which is also in close proximity to where Burke was having a bowl of pineapple that same night. And what's amazing about it is that even given his um, protestations that he was asleep the whole time and the family saying that, um, he admitted on Dr. Phil that he actually got up when everybody else was asleep that night and went downstairs on his own. That dovetails perfectly with what we know of the evidence, the physical and scientific evidence that's there. So it was a critically important detail that we completely missed, or at least I did, until we were actually walking through that house. I mean, that, and I remember Jim and I stood in the basement area, and we're looking at the first time we were allowed to go into the house itself, and we were looking at pictures. And I remember saying, well, hang on a minute, where's the red stool? Um, and where's the red chair that should be in the basement? And everyone sort of looked around. I said, look, in this picture, there's a stool and there's also a chair. So the art department managed to get a stool and a chair. But the point I also 
realised was actually there were far better things to stand on. If you were going to exit the basement, right. why not use the chair or the stool? Because they were instead there. Instead of a suitcase. So instead of a, an old suitcase, right. which actually was quite difficult to stand on. So, right. so it's those, significant in terms of actually rebuilding and, and trying to figure out what happened. And it's also just the detail that everybody went to just to make sure it was all exactly as it should be. I mean, an exact replica as much as you could, like you said, down to the bagels that were on the kitchen counter, down to the gingerbread houses that the children made, and Jim and I standing where the pineapple bowl was, and us just saying, no, this isn't to the left here, it's actually to the right, and the tissue box is behind it, which sounds really, you know, anal, but actually you have to be that detailed. You go into the absolute micro because all those things are vitally important of working out the sequence of events and who did what and where and when and how and, and why. Yeah, and it's interesting just, again, sort of a behind-the-scenes tidbit that, um, you know, we got one chance on the intruder theory and Laura coming through that window because those cobwebs were recreated once and only once. Once you go through and ruin those cobwebs, we can't recreate that again. I mean, there was just no time more than right. anything. So I remember everybody's heart kind of pounding when that happened. I mean, we right. pretty much it's, knew that you would disturb the cobwebs, but I you really tried not to. You couldn't though, avoid it. Yeah, avoid it, was, it. It, was, it was not avoidable. And funny enough, even coming to this building today, I think now what I'm going to be known as is the security guard down there said, you're the woman who came through the basement window. <laughs> Which totally took me aback because I had no context of what he was saying. It was you, wasn't it? You came through the basement window. I just got out of my car. I had no idea what he was talking about. You are the intruder. I, yeah. I got, came through Laura. the basement window. Exactly. That's but, funny. And it was a difficult thing to do. Yeah. I mean, coming down from that height and certainly trying not to... I had to favour the right-hand side, but try, I actually did try and not go through that, that cobweb. But equally, going back out was difficult as well. And there was just no way you could avoid it. Right. So I'm going to take us back because we got a little off charter in terms of building a linear a linear uh, picture of how this all happened. So once we sort of put the team together and said, OK, we're going to do this, we went to Jim Clemente's living room and we shot our own little sizzle and we flew in Henry Lee. And this was in February. This was, well, we, Fe- we, it, was, it was Super Bowl Sunday. That's we got right. the whole team together. Well, we, Dr. Dr. Spitz, Spitz was on the, phone. on the phone, but everybody else on the team came, and we started in my living room and yeah. started shooting the sizzle, and then we went down to my studio, and we did the individual interviews there. And I think some of the greatest, you really pulled out a, a bunch of great one-liners yes, in that, those interviews. Yes, it was directed by Elisa. <laughs> yes. The original interviews. I remember finishing that day, and it was so exhausting, and I actually went to a Super Bowl party, and I said to my husband, who's a lawyer, I feel like I just prosecuted a case because I normally just ask questions like a producer, but I was actually asking them like a prosecutor, like, right. is it your opinion, James right. Kohler, that on the night of December 26th, you know, because uh, at that point, we really had to get the specifics of the case. Right. In two days, one by one, in the recording studio. Right. And I have to give a shout out to James Davis, who actually shot the sizzle for us and, and put it together. He did a great job. He and did an amazing job. And I'll take it one step further, which, again, I hope I'm not talking out of turn. But when, uh, when the network started looking at cuts, uh, I can't remember who told me. Someone told me that... Uh, that's they decided that they wanted interviews cut in of you guys, and that's when we eventually shot those later because they I, they said, and I quote, we want it to look like the sizzle reel. Wow, <laughs> that really does say yeah. a lot. And so that's, well by done, the way, very James typical Davis. of a network. They yeah. always, because they are so blown away by the sizzle, they want to recreate that magic. Yeah. But, 
But it really was powerful, and, and we and did wasn't have Terrell on sound. Terrell, our engineer on, today, our engineer was, today was on sound yeah, as well. So we have up. to give him a shout out shout too. Out perfect uh, sound. And I, that I think day. <laughs> I think cameraman number two was Simba. So, oh, that's right. Yeah. It was Simba, yeah. who's, who's another wonderful person and engineer. And we have We've, Frenchie, who was the stylist, who made sure everyone looked great as well. And also cooked up a storm. She certainly did. <laughs> she so Hannah Kendall, delicious. shout out to her. Yeah. Those it were was, good days. It was. It was like a really sort of homegrown operation. And I don't think we knew um, how big it would get. I mean, I, I don't think in no. our wildest dreams we thought it would land on a broadcast network with 10.3 million viewers the first night. That's we were just against the Emmys. Against the Emmys, and incredible. So that was that was pretty. It's cool to look back on it. So once we once we had it, I I think at some point after that shoot, we started transcribing. You know, I, it kind of hit me like, okay, this is this is big. This is gonna be. This is like sort of bigger than even I thought or we thought. We need to we need to go big with this. So I think yeah. at this point, you know, XG Productions, which is Jim and his brother Tim's company, was behind this, and you know, we're not. A physical production company, so right. it was like, okay, we got to take this out wider, and you know, we ended up partnering with with Critical Content, and yeah. in that meeting, Jim was not at that meeting. Laura and I were there, and and it was After you know several espressos, I yeah. think it was, wasn't yeah. it? Early we were nine all, o'clock. We were all on caffeine, and and Tom Foreman, who's the head of Critical Content, was we had sort of had a competing offer from from somebody else, and and you know, he said. I said, well, we're talking to business affairs. He goes, well, then we'll talk to business affairs. You know, and it was very clear he was not going to rest until he got the show. And and we realized that to do it in this short amount of time, and ironically, it was way shorter than we thought it was. We thought, Lord, we had planned on doing this so that we could shoot it and start airing it over time. So you would shoot episodes as opposed to right. shooting the entire thing in one felt swoop. And it would and air around Christmas yeah, time. Yeah, it would you air maybe it would be October time. Yeah, filming. October or right, November, November into December because, <laughs> right. you know, we figured it would probably be six or eight episodes. And unfortunately, that didn't happen at all. And so, but the weight of the show is actually exemplified by the fact that once CBS bought it and they decided to air it, in the middle of September, that actually drove all the other networks who had planned on airing their shows around December to push it back before ours. I think it's a a real statement to the fact that they knew that this was going to be the show. And I think it proved that by not only the ratings, but the quality of the work and the statement that we made with an investigation as opposed to just sort of having a bunch of talking heads talk about issues or interviews. Absolutely. And I guess it was at some point during production in Colorado when we found out that Dr. Phil was going to interview Burke, and Burke had never been spoken to. In- it was a, a week after we tried to speak to him. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. What was your guy's reaction at that point when you found out that Dr. Phil was going to speak to him? Well, I think Laura said, see, they're going to try to get out in front of us, like just like we thought. And... It, it is it is understandable um, and I think that you know in the end it it didn't do what they wanted to do I think they wanted to take the wind out of our sails go on the offensive yeah. I remember us having that discussion right from the start that that's what they would probably try and do and of course that's exactly what happened yeah and I think you know and I don't think I know because I watched some of those shows not all of them but uh, you know, they specifically mentioned our show. I mean, not only in, not only in, you know, in their episodes, but on social media and so forth. 
And I just think that it's incredibly positive to have people come after us like that, other mm -hmm. networks and other uh, cable entities, because it shows that they knew, they recognized the fact that the panel of experts that we put together were actually expert witnesses. We actually do this for a living. We've done it for a number of decades each, and we're professionals at it. And our goal was to do a reinvestigation, not simply to rehash information. Right. And so as producers, part of the challenge then becomes your investigators also, and you're right. trying to follow a trail of evidence. The facts and the evidence. Right. That's all we're focused on. Right. Yeah. And once your boots on the ground in Colorado, stuff starts to open up. You talk to a friend who talks to a friend who then says this person wants to right. talk. So talk and about it doesn't always happen in the day. Right. Sometimes these are phone calls in the evening and people don't call you back when you want them to. Right. And and having cameras around when, uh, when something happens, uh, you're in the middle of dinner and somebody has happens to call you back or there's a break in the case and you have to rush out and follow it to another state, for example, or stay in another state even though you plan to, to leave that day. Everything has to be driven by the investigation because you can't predict what will happen. That's the thing about criminal investigations. A lot of times you pull on threads and you don't know which one is going to make the whole thing unravel and the case falls open in front of you. Yeah, and it I mean, also costs money. I mean, those right. things, you know, if you're going to fly a whole crew out to a certain place and then actually you have a lead and something changes, then you've got to make a decision. Who's going? Who's staying? You know, how much you're going to invest in this? And that, again, you know, it's not... Reinvestigations aren't cheap. Um, <laughs> right. You know, I've just seen with the Madeleine McCann case, I was just reading the, the news in the UK and another £100,000 has just been put into that um, investigation. You know, they're very costly. And certainly when you start bringing in experts and you're changing planes and trains and cars and you've got caravans full of people. It was quite a production. I mean, yeah. we had 30-something people on the road. Yeah. And that was pretty heavy, moving them from state to state to state. Yeah. I think we were in five different states. Yeah. And just so the producers out there know, this wasn't house productions typically work where we go to Michigan and we pick up the local shooter in Michigan. I mean, Arlene N Nelson, another incredible person yeah. and incredible cinematographer, cinematographer lead a DP. She's incredible. She comes everywhere. Of course, she's she's the woman. And she's I was going to say boss. she's the man. She is the boss. The boss lady. And, and she's got an incredible eye. Incre for... I mean, if you've seen the show, which hopefully everyone listening has, I mean, she, it's just a beautiful show from the B-roll to the interviews to the war room, everything. I mean, they, you know, we were there. We saw what things look like and what they end up looking on camera is just incredible. Yeah. So anyway, the point is, is that Jim's right. You travel with everybody. This was our team. And and it isn't and it isn't cheap. Um, and it's interesting because um, it's very well documented that the show was six hours and then last minute became four hours. And obviously we lost a lot of content. And well, um, actually, it could have been 10 hours very easily. Yeah, easily. With, uh, easily. Even more oh. than that. And actually, when we started writing it, we said that this would be 10. I mean, that was our dream, really. Mm -hmm. That was our aspiration. Yeah. That it would be 10 episodes very similar to Making a Murder. And I still believe we could have made 10 episodes. Oh, there's no question we could have done it. I think it was more, I think the decision to pare it down has constantly been driven not by the investigation and the content, but by media and that's an important balance and and we use the media just as much as they used us so we needed to to strike a balance and i think the fact that it's four hours on network television is great i think it did its job i think 
going to six hours when we put it on cable or other other venues and internationally. Yeah. I think that'll be a good thing, too. Yeah, people will be able to see more of the detail, more of what we investigated, because some of the questions that people have been having has been, have been based on the fact that we had to truncate and, and condense scenes and cut out scenes. Not that the, 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 the basic theme or the basic investigative tent poles are gone. They're, they're still there, but there's more more bricks in the foundation than people got to see. It's the Absolutely. nuanced detail, and they're the things that people are asking the questions about, right. which it, exactly. we did cover. We did ask other people, yeah. you know, experts, to shed light right. on certain things for us. I want to get into that in a second, just kind of touch on a few of those things briefly. But what I do want to mention, just to set the record straight, because, you know, a lot of the a lot of the reviews said, oh, well, did the six to four mean that CBS didn't have faith in the show or they didn't think it held up? That absolutely wasn't true. CBS loved the six episodes. The content was incredible. It really was. It really was partially driven by all of these other shows that have come out and a lot of the same, you know, people were yeah, spoken instead to. Of, and, right. Instead of rehashing things that were now out in the public, instead of have, instead of us having to lay the entire foundation of the case, knew. people, it was back in the zeitgeist. Yeah. But I also want to talk, since we're talking about logistics, two people that were incredibly important were Alex Stapleton and Dana Bial. I mean, they helped build the foundation of this case and allowed us to go out and do our investigation. And when we would get a new person, Alex would be on on the phone setting everything up, all the logistics side of it, and Dana would make sure it actually happened. And she's the one that moved the entire crew around the country a number of times. Dana, the EIC, the executive in charge, and Alex um, Stapleton, the senior producer, both incredible women. And and Eddie really assembled this team extremely hastily um, because of the crazy timeline. And, And luckily, I mean, by the grace of God, these people were available and, you know, just a pleasure to work with. We, we got lucky. We made many, things happen. I mean, things it, very, happen very quickly, quickly. Had their fingers yeah. on the pulse. And yeah. they were so respectful of what we were doing as well. And yeah. That, that to me was remarkable, just and, how respectful they were to the subject. And Alex did this all when she was six, seven, and eight, nine months <laughs> pregnant. <laughs> But you know what? She probably had the baby by now. She did. Yes. Oh, she's a beautiful boy. Yeah. Oh, nice. Beaumont. So yeah. if you're listening, okay. Alex, oh, good. congratulations. congratulations. Yay. So, you know, some of the things that, that got lost when we had to cut the show, I just want to touch on because I think, you know, we, we did interview Sina Wong, you guys. She's a handwriting uh, analysis expert. And um, she it, she will be in the six-part version that's going to air internationally. Um, she, you know, she went through the ransom letter and showed the similarities with Patsy's handwriting. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that definitely helped build some of the blocks of this, right? Yeah, and you're going to see interviews that we conducted in Atlanta and Indiana and Michigan that we didn't, that didn't make it to the final cut. Those things are going to be in there and that's going to add depth and understanding to the investigative um, foundation that we built in this in this case. And the process and adding some colour. You know, some of them took us back to the time who were there 20 years ago who were grief counsellors, for example, going into the schools, talking to the children. Um, so giving us a sort of a baseline of what was going on, you know, and what the children were saying at the time, because obviously both Jean Bonnet and Burke were at school. So it was important to hear, you know, what was going on in the school and other experts around other theories too. One yeah. of the things that's getting a lot of press, which we knew would get a lot of press, is of this you know, 10 or 11-year-old boy that, that we brought in to demonstrate the skull cracking. Um, whose idea was that? How did that come about? Well, that was a discussion with Eddie, I think, wasn't yeah. it? We, we wanted to talk about sort of new tests that we could conduct. And because 
Dr. Spitz had uh, a very clear theory about the flashlight. Um, Eddie's view was that we had to try out, you know, whereas he had drawn diagrams and it looked like a perfect fit. He wanted to try out whether that would actually, you know, what can you find that's as close to a skull to see in a practical way what that injury might look like. And of course, it's very difficult to simulate. But one of the important things to say about that particular scene is that there were caveats put in of us saying very clearly that we felt that we had to try a test like that to, to show and prove, and, and not necessarily to prove it positively. It could have been a negative thing too, but just no, we didn't to know demonstrate. Right, right, right. We'd never done That's this before. That's what a before. test is. I mean, we had it's no idea what the result right. was. Right, it wasn't tested off camera first it wasn't. to see. And no. so they were genuine reactions. Right. And in yeah. fact, Jim went first, um, you know, with, with the pig skin over the skull. Right. Um, and I also tried it as well, as well as um, the young boy, Brandon. And, it was all very carefully explained as to why we were doing it and all very respectfully done because, mm. you know, it was a very difficult thing for all of us to do too and, of course, for Brandon. And we all felt very uncomfortable doing it. And, in fact, we went to do it the first time and we decided it it wouldn't have worked doing it in the house. It felt very strange. Right. And we, we talked about it at length. It about, needed to be more clinical. Correct. Yeah. And, and, you know, we knew that there was a risk that it would come off in a it would look bizarre and trite for TV. But actually, to test these hypotheses, we don't believe that you can just talk about it, speculate. You actually have to do it as uncomfortable as it feels. But the whole subject is uncomfortable. We're talking about a little girl that was killed. Right. And Jim and I and the team were dedicated and committed to try and get to the bottom of that. And sometimes you have to do things that feel and look uncomfortable to do so. Did you guys, you know, you went into this with an open mind. You went into this as... We are going to, you know, wipe the slate clean. We are going to investigate this from the beginning and build this evidence block by block and see where it takes us. Were you guys, you know, now that it's over and it's aired and you've kind of put it to bed in certain ways, you know, how do you feel? Are you satisfied? Do you feel like you yeah. set out to? I have to say, honestly, that during the course of the investigation, I once we got to through some of the different theories that were out there, particularly the intruder theory, once we had very much solidified as a group that the ransom letter was staged, that a bunch of the things that were done to JonBenet's body were staged. I mean, it was very clear after we disproved this this whole basement window theory that, that they had come in and come out through that window. Once that had happened, I honestly had serious questions in my mind, who in that family could have done what? And I think one of the fundamental problems with how the investigation was seen by the world, I'm, I can't say that this is how the Boulder Police Department sees it, because I know, I, I, I've talked to people from the Boulder Police Department, I, I know what they believe about this case, but they can't make public statements about it. But retired ones we've talked to, that there are theories that, that Burke could have done it, that John could have done it, that Patsy could have done it. And to me, the weight of the evidence was balancing between Burke and Patsy up until the point where, where we spoke to a, a local attorney who, who works in juvenile cases who explained to us how the grand jury, who got to see all the evidence in this case, except they never talked to Kim Archuleta, but... And she was the 911 operator. She was the 911 operator, and she had never been put before the grand jury. But the grand jury indicted Patsy Ramsey and John Ramsey on four counts. And we looked at those four counts, two counts each, 
And she stated that they were charged as accessories after the fact, not as somebody who actually did the main crime. And that means that a third person somebody must else. have done it. Yes, first-degree so, murder. Right, well, it, yeah. So that's it, what it first, was in the indictment. Right, Sorry, they, they were suspected it. of first-degree murder and child abuse resulting in the death of a child. So, so that was your moment. Yeah, that was the moment that tipped the scales more towards Burke. And, of course, then it made the pieces of evidence, one of which is a piece of pineapple, make much more sense. <laughs> right. Is that, was that your moment, too? I think so. I mean, I think talking to Lisa, um, you know, certainly clarified things. But the the grand jury indictment is a very important point. And of course, it only came up in 2013 because of Charlie Brennan um, pushing for the indictments to be released. But remember, only four pages out of the 18 actually were released. And uh, Jim and I were certainly um, looking to, on behalf of the whites, try and get the extra pages Um you know, we wondered why they only chose to release four of them. You know, what was contained in those other um, 14 pages? And certainly the fact that somebody else must have committed the actual, uh, must have actually killed her because the wording is so clear um, within those two indictments. And, you know, I, I think now, and certainly when we were putting this together, I was certainly um, surprised by how much evidence really existed in this case. Um, and I think a lot of people for, for many years haven't really known the full detail of what happened to Jean Bonnet. So there's lots of people who do buy into the sexual predator um, due to her being in pageants. There's certainly, you know, people who think that it was a revenge type situation because of something to do with John's business. And us actually taking it apart, showing people, you know, and putting the evidence just as you would in terms of, you know, the people who were called before the grand jury um, and doing it in a way that was objective. And we approached this in an objective and respectful way. We didn't go into it with a closed mind. We were very much, we would, we would go where the evidence and facts take us. Yeah. And, and you tried to track down John and you tried to talk to Burke. I mean, we wanted well, them in to a be respectful a part. way. Exactly. Well, we, we tracked them down and we right. reached out to them right. and we offered them right. every opportunity to right. speak with us right. and, I, and I do find it curious I mean this is just my professional perspective of why go on a show like Dr Phil why not talk to the experts because every other family that I have worked with and I can, can only talk from my own experience uh, you know they want a, a panel of experts like the ones that we assembled they many of them do contact me and I know Jim gets contacted as well asking us to assist with cases and I found it at real odds that this was a family that would do go to great lengths not to be in, not to be in contact with us and actually to do the absolute opposite and talk on a TV show like Dr. Phil rather than work with us to try and get to the bottom of what went on. Well, but really, isn't that consistent with everything that's happened in the last control the narrative. Controlling exactly. the narrative, and that's exactly. what we saw the whole way through. And that's the part that, of course, speaks volume. And as I always say, it's an... You know, it's a phrase of it's not always what people do do. It's a lot of the time what they do not do that's very revealing about who they are. And I think one of the most important things that we learned through this whole process is that when people look for monsters, they're not going to see the, the actual people who commit acts of violence. And it can be that an accident can actually drive something like this and the the desire to cover it up um, can actually result in something like this happening and a case still being open 20 years later. 
Yeah, and one of the things you brought up the Whites, Laura, with um, reference to the indictment, I mean, you guys, Fleet and Priscilla White, were very close friends of the Ramseys, and, and you both worked tirelessly to try to get them to come on camera. I mean, they knew the Ramseys really well, and uh, and they and they just wouldn't. But but you guys had had dinner at their house. We had we had well we had a number of conversations right. with them. We were at their house a number of times, but uh, we didn't have dinner at the house. We met somewhere and okay. then we went back to the house. But they were great people. They yeah. they I feel like they were victims in this case. That they they had the finger pointed at them and they were accused of things hor- horrific things, and none of that was anywhere near truth. Um, yet they suffered the consequences of that and. It's terrible to see that. We wanted to give them an opportunity to tell their story. They did not want to do it on air. Um, and but the they time did talk to us, right? As well, because the right. timescales were challenging. And and Jim and I did strike up a, you know, a, a real and genuine relationship with them. And I had genuine, you know, empathy for what they've gone through. I mean, Fleet White was interviewed over eighteen times. Why? Because he was with John Ramsey when Jean Bonnet was found, and just the things that their whole family has experienced. Um, you know, and the important thing to say, and with the show, it kind of uh, didn't convey this. It does in the the six hours but just how many people's lives were ruined mm-hmm. and that was the very difficult thing that Jim and I were uncovering more and more people and listening to these awful stories where people's lives really had been torn apart and ruined because they'd been named as suspects and you know that to me is also an unforgivable unforgivable part um, of what's gone on there are multiple victims as yeah. well as John Bonet yeah good point so lastly, just what do you guys think in general about this opportunity that we all had to do something important? I mean, it was always from day one, you know, Laura, I think in your book you have a picture of, of John Bonet, and it was always in our meetings and everything. It was, you know, forget TV, forget entertainment, forget all of it. We want to speak for John Bonet. We want to get justice for her after all of this time. Do you, what do you think about, you know, accomplishing that and and the and the power to be able to do that in in this sort of national platform. Well, I mean, the victim's voice is always the most important thing, certainly to me in this, and and being a victim's advocate and ensuring that her voice didn't get forgotten. And you know, I genuinely feel that victims shouldn't be footnotes in their own murders in particular. And certainly there's been so much noise around this case for 20 years. Um, You know, it's an interesting thing. I was talking to a senior police officer this morning about, you know, what does success look like? What does justice look like? Because to different people, it means different things. Um, I certainly feel, you know, in this particular case, um, it's about the truth, actually. It's about being objective and looking at the facts and the evidence and and the relentless pursuit of that truth. And I think that we did uncover the truth of what went on. Um, I don't think the evidence lies. I think that people around it do and can interpret it in the way that they want to interpret it to give a version of events that suits them and their agenda. And I think that's much more accurate a portrayal of what went on here. I think looking cold and objectively at, at the facts, and as Dr. Henry Lee said, let the science and let the evidence speak for itself. And I actually think we built a, a, a very robust case um, and were objective in the search for the truth. And I always believe the truth will always out eventually. And I, I believe that Moving forward, I mean, this was a tremendous opportunity to get the information out to millions of people across this country and around the world, and that was our hope, and it's, it's begun. 
it, it's not over yet. It's begun. Yeah. And what we really hope is like um, serial and like making a murderer that 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 this has created a dialogue in the community that people are talking about this. Whether they they agree with our theory, our comprehensive theory of what happened or not, the fact is people are speaking about it in a much more intelligent, evidence-based way. And I'm hoping that people put pressure on the district attorney's office to to retract that ridiculous exoneration letter that they sent to the Ramseys because it had no basis in law or fact and and certainly was unprecedented. Um not in this case, because they had already done that same thing with respect to Burke earlier. And I think all those Ramsey's letters should be retracted by the district attorney's office. That's what I believe. And I believe that the Boulder Police Department should be permitted to close this case and make a public statement about the fact of how many defendants, potential suspects that they had already vetted and uh, ruled out and and who they actually believe committed this crime, and whether or not they believe that any prosecutions could ever be made. And I think that if they do that, they can close this case, and John Bonet can finally rest in peace and get justice. Now, it won't be a trial in a court of law, but I believe that people in the community are smart enough to understand what actually happened. And I think they're listening. I think they can make a difference. They can help basically pressure the district attorney's office to act. I, I agree. I, I, I'm so glad that you guys did this. I'm so honored that you brought me along for the ride. It was the most important. I think interest. we were actually bought along on the ride by you, Aliza. <laughs> well, you're always on my ride. Told. Yeah. But, you know, it was it was a privilege. It was a real, you know, interesting, important, significant case that, you know, we we couldn't like I said, I mean, I don't think we could have dreamed that it would have been as big as it was and be able to reach as many people as it did. And that's at least for my career, a peak moment. And and I want to just thank you both for that. Well, thank, oh, and you. thank you too. You and know, it's all about a team, and I think we made a good team. I'm talking about the team of investigators, but also the producers. You know, and led by Eddie Schmidt and you know others. I, I think you know he showed real leadership and trying to piece so many moving parts together. And you know, I for one felt that we all hold, held true to what we were trying to achieve. It was authentic, and it was about the search for truth, and under a huge amount of pressure and timescales that were, you know, really, really challenging. So yeah. and I've I think enjoyed working Foreman, with you too. So. Yeah, it helped also to have partnered with Tom Foreman and Critical Content because I believe Tom is a vision, visionary. Tom was able to see how we could get this done in an incredibly short period of time where other people didn't see a path to that. And so he, he yeah. actually made it happen, and, and that's, that's pretty damn cool. Yeah, and I mean, he supported sort of, you know, our vision and what we wanted to accomplish from day one and really never wavered from it from the beginning. So right. for that. From the mission. Right. And it really and was a mission. Yeah. A vision and a mission. A vision and a mission. And those are things that always seem to get changed as things go on. So the fact that, and, and to CBS, frankly, for letting yes. us 
do what we did. I, I, I still am kind of in shock that it happened because it was a big deal to be able to do what we did and to come to the conclusions that we did and say it on national television and the truth that what we believe is the truth. So so to CBS, hats off to, yeah, to Chris and Sharon and Glenn. And Glenn Geller. I mean, he certainly was the guy who who we pitched it to and he saw it and wanted it and, and was very, very adamant about doing it and doing it right. And he saw that it was done that way. Absolutely. So thank you to everyone involved. Thank you guys for being here. I hope that people will get some more insight on how we did this all. And and I really appreciate it. Thank Thank you, you. Lisa.